At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good so news. In 1978, somebody scooped this up for 50 cents, but now there's a stark difference because in this vintage toy store, he's selling for $800. There's a great disparity there. You see that some things of age have incredible value. Another example, my in-laws, the Pettingers, have had a barn that was built in the late 1800s. It was twisted and falling apart, and the family was to the point where they were saying, do we tear it down because it's unsafe? Do we just demolish it and sell off the wood? But they took another road. My brother-in-law and father-in-law got together, and they bought a sawmill, and they harvested trees from the woods, and they cut siding and beams and headers and familiarize themselves with the building techniques of that day. And now that barn is raised and it's plumb and level and square and sturdy. And it's becoming beautiful like it was when it was originally made. Because there is beauty in things of age. And as we consider this morning that the newest and the shiniest things are not always better, we're going to jump into a series called Essentials. We're going to ask the question, why truth matters? And in this series, we're going to affirm the value of one of the oldest creeds in the Christian faith. That's the Apostles' Creed. It was likely not written by the actual apostles, but it's been used throughout time to help people who at that time were not rich enough to own a Bible or who were illiterate and couldn't read the Bible. And they would use the Apostles' Creed as like a catechistic memorization tool so that they could stay strong in their faith while they couldn't read the Scriptures. And they could also use it to affirm new people into the faith and guard their hearts against false teachings. So as we go into this series, we're going to ask the age-old question of what is truth. But before we begin, I'd like for us to all affirm that creed together. As we read the Apostles' Creed, in your bulletin, there's a handout. It has written in there the Apostles' Creed. You can take that with you. Maybe do as some of the ancients did and use it as a memorization tool to continue to bolster your faith. We're going to read through it together, but before we do, I'd like to make two clarifications. Because there's an original version of the creed that we're going to read through, and then there's a slightly edited version in your bulletin that makes it a little more clear to you. But as we read through the original, there's two lines that I want to clarify. One of them is, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I don't want you to stumble and say, well, gosh, we're non-denominational Protestant. We don't believe in the Catholic Church, but we're not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. This is pre-Reformation. This is pre-schism of the church when there was only one church. And Catholic is Greek. It means universal. So we're affirming that we believe in the singular church of Jesus Christ throughout all time and throughout all nations. That's what we're affirming when we read that verse, that line. And the second one is referring to Jesus after he died on the cross. It says he descended to hell. And in your handout, it says he descended to the dead. We want to clarify that we're not teaching that Jesus spent a literal three days in hell. We're teaching that the pain he experienced on the cross, 
and the emotional and spiritual pain he experienced being separated from the love and communication and fellowship with the Father was similar to what a damned soul would receive and feel as they descend to hell. So rather than write a bunch of verses, the original authors wrote a single verse to equate to that pain that Jesus felt. So would you read with me together? We're going to go through the Apostles' Creed and affirm this this morning in our church. It says, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Thank you for affirming that creed here this morning. And as we dive into the series, we're going to begin asking the question of what is truth? Across the ages, philosophers and artists and teachers and students and just about everybody has asked the question, what is truth? Even Pontius Pilate asked Jesus those very same words. He said, what is truth? The problem today is that everyone has their own version of truth. Our culture invites us and encourages us to develop our own truth and then to take that truth and present it to other people and demand that they affirm it back to us as truth. So in our culture of all this disinformation, how are we to know what the difference is between fact and fiction? How do we really know what is true? And for us to figure that out, we're going to start with that very first line of the Apostles' Creed. It's the first few words, I believe in God. That might seem like something that most people believe, might seem pretty general or generic to you. In fact, when Americans are polled at large, 81% say, yes, I believe in God. You think, gosh, that seems pretty good, 81%. But then you realize that in the past few years, that number has taken a nosedive to 81%. And it's falling because our culture is telling us that God really isn't relevant. He really isn't necessary. But the scriptures speak differently. Instead of calling us to be progressive or to be modern, the scriptures tell us to come back to bedrock. Come back to the place where truth originates. And it's encapsulated in those first four words of the Apostles' Creed. It's an expression of faith and trust that God is there. And that believing in him is essential to possessing truth. That creed is saying, I believe in God. And it's important to us to understand what it means to believe and why it's so essential. So we're going to go together to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 and 6 together. Hebrews 11, 1 and 6. And I experience the same issue that Nathan does, but I come prepared. <laughs> Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Skipping ahead to verse 6. 
And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The reason that faith is essential is because belief in God is how we draw near to him. See, the writer of Hebrews was encouraging a group of ethnic Jews who had come to Christianity but professed faith in Jesus but were now being persecuted like crazy. There was a great bloodless persecution. They were losing property. They were losing rights. They were being pushed out of their homes because of their faith in Jesus. And they had begun to think, gosh, it wasn't this bad when I was practicing Judaism. Why don't we just go back to that? And the author is saying, stop. Jesus is better. He's pleading with them to stick to their faith. And he goes through a whole list of normal people that God has used in their great faith to accomplish his purposes. He talks about the faith of Enoch and Abel and Abraham and Moses, the faith of Rahab and a variety of the prophets and the many martyrs. There's a whole list of people that God has used to accomplish his purposes by their faith. We call that section the Hall of Faith in Hebrews. But he starts as we read in verse 1, with a more basic premise, that faith is the means by which we know God. And in verse 1 here, we see that the author is giving us this very simple idea, that faith is banking everything that we have, all of our chips on the table, banking it all on something that we don't possess, something that is not realized at the moment. Faith is an orientation of trust in what somebody else says or what somebody else promises. And we feel that. We exercise that. We have that faith here as followers of Jesus. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We just affirm that in the creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit indwelling each of us as believers. We believe that Jesus is our great intercessor, that he's seated at the right hand of God interceding for us. And we believe, even though we can't see it or touch it, we believe that we have access to God in prayer. And then in verse 6, we read that faith is essential to know God, but it's also essential to please God. John Piper says, he says it like this, that God is most glorified in us when we are most, what? We're most active in our prayer life? No. God is most glorified in us when we are most involved in the Bible and Bible studies and doing Christian stuff. Not it either. God is most glorified in us when we are serving him and serving the poor. No. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Faith is how we draw near to God so that we can understand him better and be satisfied in him alone. Fundamentally, faith in God is believing two things. The first thing is that he exists. The second thing is that he rewards those who seek him. But believing that he exists is so basic that we tend to just gloss over it. But it's absolutely necessary. When we're talking about faith in God, we have to believe that he actually exists. We could spend a lot of time talking about you know, apologetic evidence for the belief in God, and there's a lot of it. Brother Joseph Wassel has a site dedicated to that. He has a page on Facebook called Wassel Science. Plug for him. If you haven't subscribed to that, do it. Tons and tons of beautiful evidence for the existence of God in creation, 
in animals and in our bodies and in the cosmos and in our planet. There's such good evidence for the existence of God in those apologetic imprints. But faith, beyond all of that evidence, faith has to be our starting point. If we're going to draw near to God and relate to him, faith has to be our starting point. And consider how fundamental that that saying is, that notion is, to us. If we're going to seek to possess something, seek to achieve something, we have to actually believe it's there to be had. If I'm going to work hard toward a monetary goal, maybe money for taking care of my family, I'm going to work hard for my employer, but I have to believe that the employer has the ability to pay me. If I know my company's insolvent and has no money, I'm not going to work hard to achieve that monetary goal through them. I have to believe it's there to be had. If you're going to take a trip, the Florida Keys, I don't know, you can name any place, you have to actually believe that place exists before you're willing to pack up the family and take a trip there. So if you're going to pursue to possess something, you have to actually believe or exercise faith that it exists. And most people say that about God. They say, I believe he exists. That's that 81% statistic we talked about earlier. However, their lives say completely the opposite. For the vast majority of those people, including a lot of Americans, or Christians, I'm sorry, we don't seek to know God. The vast majority of those people, including Christians, don't make any effort to draw near to God. The vast majority, including Christians, don't live in a way that's consistent with how God has revealed himself to us. And then that latent dead belief is reduced to a functional atheism. Because if we really believed, if we truly believed and banked everything on a loving God that was magnificent and powerful and created all of us, wouldn't it change the way that we relate to him? Wouldn't we change the way that we worship him? Wouldn't that change that idea, that faith? Wouldn't it change the way that we relate to other people and serve other people and think and talk about other people? Wouldn't it change the way that we work and seek to acquire this world's possessions? Wouldn't we hold them less with a clenched fist and more with an open hand if we truly believe that way? But instead, we act as if God doesn't exist. We're filled with like this gross spiritual apathy, and a belief in God is more like a meh than an actual faith. We suppress what we know about God in order to make it easier to live our lives in this self-indulgent way, but that's not the way to live. Faith says God exists, and faith puts on shoes and walks toward him. Faith says that God exists, and it gets busy to actually living for him. Faith says, faith says God exists and it does what it can to become more satisfied in him so that he can become more glorified in us. So believing in God is how we get close to him or faith drives us toward him, but there's something else we have to learn here. The second reason that faith is essential is because it's how we come to understand God. Our faith isn't blind as many secularists would like you to believe. We don't have a blind faith. It's not produced by whims or imagination. 
The self-disclosure of God that forms the foundation of our faith is found in the Bible. Paul wrote in his second letter to Timothy, you turn there, 2 Timothy 3.16, he explained it for us. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The root of the Christian faith is in believing what the Bible says about God. We're trusting that the Bible was written and inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it's true and that it's faithful in everything that it attests, and that it's written that we might believe and that we might have life. And it's our key to understanding him and to knowing him better and ultimately to being more satisfied in him so that he is most glorified by us. So faith takes us back to the Bible. And in the Bible, God discloses to us many attributes about himself, many of his characteristics. But one he reveals specifically is that he tells us he's a singular God. And that he exists eternally in three co-equal persons. That's the mystery of the Trinity. A singular Godhead consisting of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each of these individual persons manifest attributes that they use in the lives of believers and in creation, but they're all 100% God. And if we want to know about God, we look at the Son. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus reinforces this Trinitarian view of the Godhead as he tells his disciples, as he's leaving earth, he tells them to go and make more disciples. And when they do, they're to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And notice name is not plural, it's singular. One name, one God, existing in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the logical path that this presents for us here. To know God requires faith. Faith is built by believing God's revelation of himself in the Bible. We know God by faith. Faith takes us to the word where he reveals himself to us. And in the word, he's revealed himself as one singular essence that exists in three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons. How can you make sense of all that? Faith is the essential key. I think back to when our girls were born, when our triplets were born, 11 weeks early, they were small, like less than three pounds on average, fitting to two of your hands small. And in those early days, there was a lot of uncertainty. And as they spent over six weeks in the neonatal intensive care at Beaumont, there was a lot of questions. There were a lot of machines hooked to them as they were in their incubators with tubes and hoses and leads and IVs and all sorts of stuff all over them. And I was confused and I didn't understand but I believed. I banked my trust in the hospital, in their knowledge, in their experience, and in the nurses and the doctors who were providing care. And to understand who God is, we have to come with faith and trust that what his word says is true. And when we hear God's disclosure of himself as a singular God existing in three persons co-equally, for our finite minds, are created finite minds that might seem a little illogical to us. But we must 
embrace by faith that that is the way that God designed it. And as we process that, it's very freeing for us as believers. We don't need to know everything. We don't need to be able to articulate every aspect of our Christian faith. We don't have to walk around with a study Bible and a copy of systematic theology under our arm at all times to be ready for any question that somebody has. We don't need to know everything to walk with Christ and be a faithful Christian. But again, this is not an invitation to a lazy, disconnected Christian lifestyle. It's good to learn and to study and to grow in the faith. But when we come to a revelation or a doctrine that we don't understand or that seems illogical, we trust by faith that what the Bible said is true. And that initial faith is essential to understanding God. As we're building the case for why faith is essential, we've seen that it's essential for us to know God, it's essential for us to understand God, and that leads us to one last point this morning, that a belief in God is how we enjoy him. Let's look at Hebrews 11, verse 6, one more time. The author of Hebrews writes, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. And here in verse 6, we're reminded the author has two distinct things in mind. He says that faith is believing that God exists, and he also says that we must believe that he rewards those who seek him. We have to believe with confidence that God is good. And as we seek him, as we draw close to him, as we read his word, we see that he truly is a good and loving and merciful and faithful father. And that belief shines a spotlight on that reward from verse 6 that we just read. We're rewarded for our faith by God actually giving us life. He gives us salvation. He gives us eternal joy. As a result of our faith, God gives us joy in him alone. That's such a beautiful thing to have here on this planet as we live, joy in God alone. And it's an encouragement, really, as we encounter dark times in our lives. As tough times are on the horizon, some of you have been through some incredibly difficult things. Some of you are right in the middle of them right now in what's called a dark night of the soul when you're in one of those deep valleys. And it's giving us the opportunity to ask the question, do I trust the Lord? Do I really believe what his word says about him, that he is good, and that he works all things out for good for those who love him? And we ask the question, do I find everything I need in God alone? Do we believe that it's by his power and not by our own strength that we will persevere through these dark times? that we will make it through and receive that reward. And the reward is so worth it. God's ultimate reward for our faith is adoption of us in Jesus Christ. And, that fa and faith that we've talked about this morning is such a critical part of that adoption. That's why the early reformers cried, sola fide. They cried out, faith alone. Because it's only by faith that we can come to Christ. We can't be saved by our good works. We can't be saved by our own accomplishments or our merits. And thank goodness, 
Because if that was the case, we would fall miserably short. We can't measure up. We can't do it ourselves. But the good news, the gospel of the Christian faith is that we don't have to because Jesus Christ did it for us. From before the foundation of the world, God knew of our sin plight. So Jesus left the perfection of heaven and came to earth to live among his creation. And as he lived here with us, he understood everything that we go through. He knew what it felt like to be hurt and to be rejected. He knew what it felt like to be denied. He understood what it was like to experience temptation, but he did it all without sin. And because he was sinless, he alone was able to be a substitutionary sacrifice for us. So he took on himself all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, and he took it straight to a cross. And on that cross, he suffered and died a death that we could not die. And he took that shame and guilt and stood front and center and absorbed the wrath of God that was due that shame and guilt and sin, and he did it for us. And he was dead for three days. But on the third day, he was vindicated. He rose from the dead, proving he was who he said he was, proving that he had the power over sin and death. And he purchased for us justification, which means a right standing before God. We can stand before God as sinless because we are justified by the work of Jesus Christ. And it's only available to us sola fide, again, by faith alone. It's not something we can achieve. You have to believe that Jesus Christ did it for you. And that's an open invitation to forsake this world, to forsake our ways of pursuing righteousness, our ways of thinking we're good enough, forsaking what this world says is true and embrace what God says is true through his word, namely that we are lost in our sin and without faith in Jesus Christ, our future is bleak. So I'd invite you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, let today be that day. When we come to him and forsake this world, we forsake the warped version of truth that is presented to us, and we're able to come to him with hope and live a life of joy. And as we draw near to God through Jesus Christ in his word, we realize that that is where the good life truly is. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we are so thankful that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Something that we are wholly incapable of doing, you did it for us. While we were undeserving and even did not desire it, you knew what was required and you paid the price for us, Father. Thank you for paying that debt. Thank you for redeeming us from sin and that we can come to you with simple faith turn from our sins and believe and be restored to you. So Lord, we ask that if there's anybody here who does not know you, who does not profess faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that there would not be a delay. May your spirit soften hearts. May that gospel call penetrate their hearts. May beautiful regeneration happen and they would be receptive to the truth of that gospel. 
and their life could be changed forever. God, we thank you. We thank you for truth that is found in your word alone. And we give glory to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.